This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, PNG's former Defence Force commander outlines his concerns over a new security treaty with the United States. The public needs to be consulted because of 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 the the global tensions and the the, the superpower rivalry in the Pacific. And PNG is not the only country signing U.S. treaties. Palau's president says his new agreement with the United States is a win-win after negotiating a significant financial boost for the country. If there's economic shocks like, you know, COVID, uh, we can uh, draw uh, additional funds out of the trust fund. And in Fiji, preparations are underway for a meeting of the Great Council of Chiefs, a body once described by former Prime Minister Frank Bainimarama as inciting racial tensions. We'll find out why it's back after more than a decade away. All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. First, though, Timor-Leste's independence hero and first president, Jejana Guzmao, has won the country's election but failed to reach an outright majority. His CNRT party secured about 42% of the votes and is now expected to form a coalition with the Democratic Party. Andrea Fay is an expert on Timor-Leste from the Australian National University. She joins us now. Good morning to you, Andrea. Good morning. Now, CNRT was in opposition, but, uh, you know, has, has now pretty much dethroned incumbent Fretilin. What do you think led to this change in government? Um, I think basically it was the, the COVID pandemic, the management of the COVID pandemic and the floods last year that uh, got people really worried that the government didn't have uh, the capacity to react to the people's needs. And it was it was a big punishment vote on this election for that man for that reason. So, so did COVID hit um, Timor Leste quite hard? Were there a lot of cases and and perhaps illnesses in the community as a result? Actually, it was it was not. It was quite mild. But the fact that the government um, had to close down and it wasn't able to help people uh, with the struggles of the 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 isolation and with with people people lost their job many businesses had to close down and that was something that um, brought some economic um, pressure on 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 the everyday lives and that's that's something the government wasn't able to respond to I think completely adequately there was a lot of unemployment there is a lot of unemployment right now and and people are really feeling the pressure right now economically. Now, Shoshana Kuzmao, who has said that the people of Timor are tired and want to change, um, he said there were reports of those statements after his win. Um, what changes can we expect his government, if he does form coalition, to introduce? Um, I think he's, well... Internationally, he's prepared to move on with um, negotiating with with Australia, uh, the development of Greater Sunshine, Sunrise, sorry, um, and and that's going to be uh, going to bring new income for the country. Um, he was he also uh, tried to develop some uh, economic um, the the economic the special economic zone in Wakusi, so he might try to push for that again to see if that uh, brings more 
infrastructure in the country. So I think he's he he wants to continue this development plan that he had established since 2007. Mm, very interesting because I guess it is focusing on development, that economy, as you said. And you mentioned that the Greater Sunrise Project. Um, I, I mean, it's it's a bit of a controversial um, project. Um, Timor is heavily dependent, isn't that right, on oil revenues into the country. Um, this Greater, greater Sunrise is, is supposed to be an oil and gas project. Um, there were talks um, earlier that that uh, from the president, uh, Jose Ramos Horta, that he might uh, – partner with China to get that Greater Sunrise project up. Do you know if Guzmao supports completely that project and if the government might consider partnering with China to deliver it? Um, I don't think they're considering China um, very seriously, mm-hmm. um, but they they do put China on the table to put pressure on the Australian actors Um especially to try to get the Australian government to um, to to be involved in the negotiations. After the maritime negotiation, Australia said they were going to be um, uh, take a step back and let Timor negotiate with Woodside directly and Osaka. Um, so I think now what they want is the, the Australian government to get involved into convincing um the oil companies to move into a development in Timor, and and that actually is going to take it. It is a, a possibility that the Australian government might um, now get more involved um, now that they the, they're taking a more active stance in Southeast Asia. Mm, interesting. Um, now let's look at the other side, I guess, Fretilin, who, who were the incumbent. Um, they just secured, I, I understand, just over a quarter of the votes, though, in this election. Did that come to, as a surprise to, to you, Andrea, that, that change in voter attitude towards Fretilin? Um, well, I think, yeah, they, they actually, they lost one of their uh, very important strongholds, which is Wekusi. So, uh, historically, the, the the main strongholds are Vikeke, Bakao, and Wekusi, and they actually lost one of them. It it signals a big loss for them this time. I think it's um it is a punishment vote. I, I think the people in Timor were not happy about the economic situation, about the lack of education, the lack of job opportunities, and health. They they realized. Um, they were in a vulnerable position. I mean, they've always been in a vulnerable position health-wise because despite um, development, developing um, doctors, there hasn't been um, establishment of clinics throughout the country. The only main hospital is in Delhi. And I think people are actually wanting a change from that. And the, the last um, government was not able to provide any, any changes it could be due to political instability within the the coalition, but I think it's it's a big thing that um, um, Timorese want um, a more um, straightforward government that is mm-hmm. going to be able to work with the presidency, and they knew Fretling was was going to run into trouble working with President Ramosorta um, for the next. Four to five years. Mm. I mean, do you think as a result of these elections, Fertilin might be reconsidering their leadership, you know, and, and perhaps think, considering a, a change in leadership? 
Yeah, I think it's time for a renewal, definitely. Um, uh, Shannon proved uh, once again that he has uh, more than uh, than than eight lives, but um, <laughs> but I think um, for Akatiri, maybe maybe it's time to pass the 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 torch. Mm, to, to some young guy, and I guess the next generation, Alcatiri, the leader of Fretilin and Guzmao, the, the leader of CNRT, are both, um, I guess, part of that independence movement and, and well, to put it, to put it bluntly, quite getting on in age. I think they're both um, in, in the 70s, so, um, yes, passing yeah. on the torch, I'm sure it would be considered. Um, if you are just tuning into Pacific Beach, we're speaking to Andrea Fay from the Australian National University. We're talking about the latest Timor-Leste's election results, which has seen CNRT, the party of uh, Janana Guzmao, leading with about 42% of the votes, but not with an outright majority, which means they're expected to form a coalition. Uh, and I wanted to change tax a bit, Andrea, because, um, you know, more relevant to the Pacific region is um, aspirations from Timor-Leste to join the Pacific Forum the Pacific Islands Forum, PIF, um, it was granted provisional approval to join last year. Do you think there is there there could be growing calls for Timor-Leste to join the Pacific Forum? And, and what sort of difference could their presence there make? Yeah, well, it's... it's uh, So, uh, geographically, Timor-Leste is seen as part of Southeast Asia, but I think culturally and... Um, it also has an, an influence in, in the Pacific Forum, and it could actually bring that, it's kind of that bridge between both regions. Mm. So I think it would be, um, Timor-Leste would be a positive addition to the Pacific Forum. Definitely um, could actually bring a loud voice uh, 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 that Timor has a, a, a strong international presence, um, and it, it could bring a, a good character for the Pacific to join the voices into working on climate change, or uh, fisheries, which is something that um, the the common topics for 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 between Timor and those specific countries. So I think, um, yeah, it would be it, it would be a good addition for them. It is, um, you know, tackling climate change something that Timor does prioritize, considering its um, dependence as well on fossil fuels. Yeah, that's right. It's it's a balance, right? It's a balance between finding. Um, the the income and, and and also being able to to get um to make sure that income is also sustainable so for example um they signed an agreement with santos to to to, to uh, use the the bayou und and um uh, depleted uh, uh oil um deposit mm-hmm. into a, a CCSU um, carbon capture um, okay. deposit. So that's that's something that they're trying to to work around. Yes, interesting. So, so sort of balance, I guess, economic needs with with the the future of the planet. Um, yep. And just finally, Andrea, you know, if we we expect CNRT to form this coalition government, um, if if it does so, if it does lead the nation, what do you expect its challenges to be in the next five years? Um, well, the, the, like I said, I think definitely they do need um, to find a way to in, to get more jobs for Timorese, not just overseas, but within the nation, and definitely develop health and education infrastructure. That's that's one of the main concerns of the population. It's a young population. Obviously, those are their main concerns right now. Mm. Um, but more importantly for their leader, I think... It's important 
for him to make sure he doesn't um um uh, 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 sorry he doesn't um does uh, sells damage mm-hmm. to his own image personally he tends to be a bombastic figure and um he tends to be uh he he tends to be a good negotiator he's a good negotiator but um i think he needs to be able to balance the 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 plan that he has with the the personal persona that he is Mm. So I think that could be one issue for them. Yes, very interesting, and and it might be tricky for the you know uh, someone labeled the independence hero and the first president um, Guzmán. But we'll we'll see if he can accomplish that. Andrea, thank you so much for your time this morning on Pacific Beat. Thank you. That was Andrea Fay from the Australian National University talking to us about those latest results from Timor Leste's election. Papua New Guinea's Prime Minister James Marape wants to assure his people that a new security pact with the United States will not undermine PNG's sovereignty or security. His comments followed a leaked draft of the Defence Cooperation Agreement, which led to plenty of debate and criticism before, during and after Monday's signing ceremony with United States Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Among those to voice their concerns is a former commander of the Defence Force and a former Prime Minister, as Liam Fox reports. A day after his Defence Minister inked the Defence Cooperation Agreement with Secretary Blinken, Prime Minister James Marape was on the front foot going on talkback radio to clear up what he called misinformation. A lot of misinformation uh, will be spinned in the public domain. Uh, I can understand the uh, concern equally for their country. Some in the midst uh, political opportunities spinning uh, spinning to the uh, to their advantage. That misinformation, as Mr Marape would call it, ramped up last week after a leaked draft of the agreement suggested the US wanted to access PNG military facilities and raise the prospect of legal immunity for US personnel if they broke PNG laws. Jerry Singerock, former commander of the PNG Defence Force, is among those worried about what the long-term implications of the agreement could be. I hope that the defense cooperation program with USA is not a prelude to to justify the presence of US and Australia in Manus Naval Base. He says the PNGDF needs all the help it can get, but he's concerned about the lack of information released to the public before the agreement was signed. Well, the US and, and Papua New Guinea have the, the freedom to, to develop this bilateral uh, relations through defense cooperation program. I still believe that the, the public needs to be consulted because of, of, of the, the global tensions and the, the, the superpower rivalry in the Pacific because Pacific is the last frontier. Another to voice concerns is Mr. Marape's predecessor in the Prime Minister's office, Peter O'Neill. I think that uh, security arrangements such as uh, that does not comply with our constitution and our laws. It requires our parliament and uh, and our people to have a bit more scrutiny over, over it. And uh, there's a lot of secrecy around this uh, this agreement. Like the rest of the public, Mr O'Neill has not seen the full text of the agreement, but he says with increasing competition between the US and China, it's not the time to be strengthening military ties with America. The talk that is going on is uh, quite, uh, it's reaching dangerous levels. And, and, and the PNG is now caught in between in, in, in that conversation. 
Instead, he says the government should focus on deepening economic, not military engagement with both China and the U.S. They do have a lot to offer in that aspect. And, you know, Papua New Guinea has got many, many challenges. And uh, I believe that uh, by having such a relationship in terms of economy will create more opportunities for our people. Prime Minister Marape, though, says the agreement will bolster, not undermine, PNG security. It is in my interest and our nation's interest to build a military that is stronger, that is better, to face challenges of our sovereignty going forward into the future. I watch with sadness our military being eroded in the last 40 years. On the concerns around secrecy and the lack of public consultation, Mr Marape says people will have access to the agreement. He wants full transparency. This, this is a public document. I've made commitment that the country will be uh, totally exposed to what was agreed upon. Interested citizens might have to wait a little longer, though, to read the agreements. People who went along to an information session hosted by the Defence Ministry yesterday were told they'd have to wait until it's presented to Parliament at the next sitting in two weeks' time. And that was Liam Fox with that report. You are listening to Pacific Beat. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. Fiji's highest chiefly political body, the Great Council of Chiefs, will reconvene today for the first time in 16 years. Commonly known as the GCC, disbanded in 2007 following a military coup by former Prime Minister Frank Bainimarama. Mr. Bainimarama accused the GCC of interfering in politics and inciting racial tensions. And by getting rid of it, he effectively removed the political influence of traditional chiefs. ABC's reporter in Fiji, Lide Mavono, joins us now on the line from the chiefly island of Mbao, where the GCC will meet later today. Yandra Lide. Yandra Vinaka Priyanka, it's beautiful here on the island of Mbau, uh, once considered the home or the power of Fiji's um, chiefs uh, not too long ago, Priyanka. And right now we are seeing close to 5,000 people assembled here for what is not just the first time in 16 years, but the first time in, in even the chief of the island says. Oh, wow. Gosh. So, so can you tell us about the significance of the meeting today? Why there are these thousands of people meeting in Mbao? Priyanka, the Great Council of Chiefs initially, when it was set up by colonial administration, years ago, used to be the main body that gave advice on anything that affected the indigenous population of Fiji. At its height, the GCC uh, chose members of Fiji's parliament. Uh, now they are more or less an advisory body, but of course has not been in existence for the last 16 years. So for the GCC to sit again is something that the indigenous people of Fiji are very happy about. However, on the backdrop of that is this island, Mpau. The island is home to the head of uh, one of Fiji's three confederacies, arguably the most powerful of the three. Um, so it has a double um, significance to that, Priyanka. Yes, you mentioned there that uh, a lot of indigenous people in Fiji, um, you know, are looking at this day with great um, interest. But how, what does it mean for other groups in Fiji? What do they see the reconvening of the GCC as? 
Priyanka, that is probably the most important question of the next few days is what will the resurgence of indigenous power mean for the other races who live in this country? And as you know, Fiji is extremely about 40% of um, the descendants of uh, Indian indentured laborers. It is home also to a large um, Chinese population as well as European population. And we, of course, have a melting pot of the other Pacific Islands that live here. So people are anxiously awaiting as to what the new um, role of the GCC will be. There is currently a review of that role, but just last night, the chief of this island, Bao, called on the members of the GCC who will meet over the next two days to ensure that the decisions they make also protect the rights and the comforts of the other races who live here, Priyanka. Mm, interesting. If you are just joining us on Pacific Beach, we're speaking to Lide Mavono in Mbao, where there is this um, a meeting of uh, GCC, the the Great Council of Chiefs, first time in in sixteen years, and quite a quite a significant meeting here because of the role the GCC plays. Now, Lide, you are in Mbao, and we're hearing the line sort of drop in and out. So, um, if you can cl- speak as closely to the, to your phone as you can, but I know you are on the island uh, itself, and there's a lot of hustle and bustle there because. Can you tell us what what do we expect to happen today? What what will this reconvening actually look like today? So, Priyanka, there are 14 provinces in Fiji, and these provinces effectively are 14 different kingdoms, if you will. On top of that, there is also the island of Rotuma, a Polynesian island to the north, uh, which is annexed to Fiji. And so they also enjoy the same privileges as the indigenous people of Fiji. And so what will happen here is each of the provinces will send three chiefs from their provinces to meet with all the others from around the country to be basically advise government on indigenous affairs. So it's everything from um, indigenous policy to um, education to economic development. Even um, in the past, they also used to elect members of the upper house of our parliament. Uh, That doesn't exist now, of course, but we're seeing a lot of cultural festivity. And so um, for me, it's seeing rituals and ceremony that has never been done before because we've not really had um, a Fiji as united as we will see over the next few days. So they will be um, talking about government policy. They will be talking about um, uh, the direction of government and and how it affects the indigenous people of Fiji. But um, as I mentioned earlier, the chief of Mbau, who in the past was considered the king of Fiji, um, given their role in the session of Fiji to the United Kingdom, has asked or has called on his fellow chiefs to think about the other races in this country as they're deciding policy over the next two days, Priyanka. Very interesting, Lede, um, to hear that because it's, I guess, quite a change from what what the GCC functioned as before to to now invite other races, minority communities into its its thinking and, and its consideration. What might that mean for today's activities? Do we know if minority communities have been invited to Mbao? Will they be part of the rituals or festivities at all? That's a very important question, Priyanka, and I think one that the eyes of the country and and most definitely the world in terms of our development partners will be looking at is how inclusive is this um, extremely uh, chiefly island going to be. But as I did a walk around 7 o'clock, 7.30 this morning, I already saw that right sitting right at the front in the VIP tent is uh, one of our Deputy Prime Ministers, Dr. Biman Prasad, Mm -hmm. who is of course a a descendant of indentured Indian labourers. And so 
it's it's very inclusive. There are about 500 VIP guests and 5,000 people expected on this island that normally only hosts between 500 to 800 people. And already there's quite a multitude of people here. Um, but as you as as you rightly asked, um, what people will be looking at is the outcomes of this meeting tomorrow. Will it be a GCC that the Indian population can feel comfortable around? Because in the past, the GCC was considered racist by um, the other ethnic groups that live here. But for now, Priyanka, everyone seems excited and everyone seems supportive of a GCC that is evolving um, into the modern era. Mm, interesting. And and Lide, I've got to ask, um, is one of the 5,000 guests, do you know if it will be the exiled chief Ratu Tivitamara? Do you think he will make an appearance at the meeting? Priyanka, he's most definitely making an appearance. In mm. fact, he arrived here yesterday with the other delegates from all of the 14 provinces and says he's already made his traditional entry onto the island yesterday. But unlike the other delegates, he is traveling in daily from the mainland. So he's most definitely here, now no longer in exile and now no longer with a threat of prosecution hanging over him, Priyanka. Yes, because he was put into exile after following the coup of um, Mr. Frank Bainamarama, is that right, Lidé? That's right. He was a very close ally of um, Mr. Bainamarama when Mr. Bainamarama um, conducted his military takeover. And, um, you know, they had a difference of opinion, a falling out of sorts. Uh, and he was picked up by a Tongan naval boat in one of our southern islands and uh, has been living in Tonga in exile um, since 2011. He's most definitely here, Priyanka, because um, what we understand is that he is about to be installed um, to take over the position that um, his uh, late father had before him and that is to be uh, the chief of Lao, uh, which also um, uh, makes him um, a power player in traditional Fijian politics. Oh, very interesting. Now, um, as you said, people will be closely watching the outcomes of this uh, GCC meeting. What, what do we know that what the GCC want to achieve with this meeting? Is it more political power, Lude? Uh, Priyanka, at this at this time, it is pretty much anyone's guess, uh, but we understand that there's a lot of controversial topics, especially um, given that they have not had a voice in the last 16 years. But as it is, the, the government have been very clear to press and to the members of the media covering these meetings that they would rather we did not speak directly to the chiefs. But of course, uh, all of the media here are insistent on um, finding out from each of the chiefs in the 15 different provinces that they represent as to what their challenges are. So for, for some of them, the issues they want to discuss here will be transportation and uh, given our geographical expense. And then for some of them, it is very political. It's about political power. It's about um, a better budgetary allocation and it's about rural development. Uh, but Priyanka, this is most definitely an important political time for Fiji to have um, Indigenous affairs right at the forefront once more. Yes, indeed. Well, Lide, thank you so much for your time this morning on Pacific Beat. Vinaka. That was ABC reporter in Fiji, in Imbau, the island of Imbau, where um, this GCC meeting, this very historic, first time in 16 years, meeting is taking place. Celebrate the pride of the Pacific. You know, we're proud of our country and our heritage. Stay up to date with all the latest sporting news. 
so emotional every time we go out there and we sing the, you know, the national anthem. And hear inspiring stories from some of the Pacific's finest athletes. I've grown so much confidence within myself and I've never thought I would be the player that I am today. Watch That Pacific Sports Show Wednesday nights at 7 PNG time on ABC Australia. It's time to find out what's making news around the region, and we're joined by Kyle Evans. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning, Priyanka. And let's jump right in, Kyle, because uh, Typhoon Mawa has now developed into a Category 4 typhoon. It's expected to strike Guam at mm. noon today. Can you give us the latest about that typhoon? Yeah, lots happened since we covered the story yesterday. Uh, as of this morning, there's various reports that it could be the strongest uh, tropical cyclone to impact Guam in decades. So this was reported by the ABC in America, and it's about two hours old. Uh, they say it developed into a, into a Category 4 yesterday afternoon, and it could directly hit Guam with winds as strong as 250 kilometres an hour, which is the equivalent of a Category 5 cyclone. Mm, oh um, rainfall could reach as high as 50 centimetres, and storm surges could reach as high as 8 metres tall. Yes, that is quite concerning. What, what, what are authorities saying there in Guam? So, yeah, Guam's Office uh, of Civil Defence, they haven't minced, uh, minced their words. They've advised residents to seek shelter immediately. Uh, it's expected to make a direct hit or a very near passage for Guam. Uh, there is potential for a catastrophic and devastating event as well, they say. Uh, meanwhile, President Joe Biden has declared an emergency uh, and has ordered federal assistance. And we will um, be following that the, the path of the typhoon here on ABC Radio Australia and provide any updates. Um, but, yes, present best wishes to the people there in Guam. And, and yes, important to take that, heed that advice from authorities to seek shelter immediately and, and prepare, I guess, prepare for the worst and hope for the best. Um, now, another grim news story here, Kyle. An Australian tourist has died while swimming in Vanuatu. What happened? Yeah, so uh, a man on board a cruise ship uh, from Sydney to Vanuatu was died while died while swimming off uh, Mystery Island, which is one of those uh, sort of popular popular islands out there that cruise ships often visit. Mm. Uh, it was reported by a number of outlets yesterday. It happened on May twenty, five days into a twelve day trip uh, on board the Carnival Splendor. Uh, the cause of death is unclear, uh, but according to a statement from the company, it appears to be a medical situation. Uh, it's unclear how old the man was or if he had any underlying uh, medical issues at this stage. Yes, but in, in any case, it, it, it somehow feels even more tragic when it's a tourist um, mm. who who suffers, you know, I mean, death is horrible whenever whenever it strikes, but yeah, someone enjoying their time in the Pacific to to um, yeah go like that just seems even more tragic. Mm. Um, but, and, and I also... Is this, am I wrong, Kyle? Is this this isn't the first? Um, it, there's been another cruise death re- very recently, isn't that? There that? has. That's right. Yeah. So last month, an Australian man actually fell from the uh, Quantum of Quantum of Seas ship, uh, which was travelling uh, from uh, Brisbane to Hawaii. And uh, yeah, tragically, he was never found with the US Coast Guard suspending uh, their search recently, sadly. Yeah, very, very sad. Um, yes, this person in, in Vanuatu and that one, um, I guess, in, in the Pacific waters um, between Brisbane and Hawaii. Uh, yes, sad, grim news all around. But um, well, let's head to some sporting news. For some I, more grim news. Yes, I, I was going to say, <laughs> yeah, usually our sporting news has, has at least a touch of, of happiness. But in this case, Moana Pacifica's head coach has stepped down. 
Tell us more, Carl. Yeah, that's right. So uh, Aaron Major, he will finish up as coach uh, at the end of the Super Rugby season after two years at the helm. Uh, so this is reported by uh, ESPN, um, who said uh, news of his departure actually emerged on Sunday afternoon uh, with the team finally making it official uh, on Monday. The team has accepted his decision. Uh, apparently, it's to, to prioritise his family and things like that. They thanked him for his work uh, in establishing the management of the team uh, while fielding a side of largely unexperienced players. Um, it's probably what made the job so hard in a lot of ways. You know, he was the guy who led them through COVID. Um, and yeah, look, that's really shown this season as well. They've, they've struggled to compete and uh, and particularly draw crowds and hence they've had a winless season so far. Yeah, yes, indeed. Uh, do we know if the replacement has been picked yet? No, so he'll stay on to the end of the season, but they will begin their search for a replacement. Um, what's interesting though, it's actually they've now become the fourth New Zealand-based franchise uh, now looking for a coach for next season. So yeah, not a, not a popular job to coach Super Rugby at the moment, apparently. Yes, indeed. I, I wonder if they had a better season, if it, if um, Aaron might have changed his his decision. You know, I guess a bad season sort of plays into your decision, but it sounds like it's family, wanting to prioritise family in this case, isn't it? Yeah, that's it's hard to say. I mean, often that's often the reason you'll hear from coaches yeah. when they decide to step away. But I think it just comes a time, you know, in, in every um, you know, in every, every coach's reign where I think a new voice is, is necessary. Yes, and COVID might not have made that, that job much easier. Um, Carl, thank you for the stories. Thank you, Priyanka. You're listening to Pacific Beat. Well, it's certainly cooled down here. I'm joining you from Melbourne, Australia. My name is Priyanka Srinivasan. Now, while the focus of U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's trip to the Pacific was a defense treaty with Papua New Guinea, it wasn't the only agreement signed. A new strategic pact was also signed with Palau as part of a compact of association arrangement between the two countries. Sorangal Whips Jr. is president of Palau and explained why the signing was important. Well, uh, first of all, the uh, Compact of Free Association uh, was uh, first negotiated in the 80s. It was a 50-year agreement. Uh, at the, every 15th year, uh, there is what we call a review of the really the economic assistance um, that, and that agreement. So uh, year 15 was 2009, and year 30 is uh, 2024. So the review is, is conducted really ahead of that so that when we get into the uh, uh, a new um, term, uh, where, where the economic assistance then uh, kicks in. Jeff Farrow, who's Palau's legal advisor, says this deal is the most significant since the first compact relationship. What makes it stronger? Well, there's several several uh, uh, factors. Uh, first, I think uh, this was really the first time that we um, uh, really uh, sat down with the United States and made it very clear that in our relationship, uh, you, you we gave up significant. Uh, uh, rights. Uh, Palau gave, of course, its rights to uh, its EEZ to the United States to control its EEZ and and, and allows uh, for use of uh, lands within Palau. These um, these rights, uh, of course, uh, last uh, actually beyond uh, the fifty year term, uh, and, and really uh, the assistance that was coming from the United States. Uh, kind of sunsetted or ended. I mean, at the end of this term, we were supposed to just be uh, really relying on a trust fund that was created uh, that that was just um, uh, fixed. Uh, the returns out of the trust fund were basically fixed on, on 1983 levels. 
so the discussion was really, you know, first of all, the, the agreement wasn't balanced. Uh, it, it really didn't uh, uh, address uh, the economic uh, needs that Palau had. And, and actually, uh, if we continued on this path, we, we really set Palau going backwards. Uh, there was an agreement that was uh, uh, during the Trump administration that was put forward by the United States. Uh, this agreement is, is more than double uh, that agreement. Um, it accounts for things like inflation, uh, which previous agreements didn't account for. And, and also, uh, there's uh, mechanisms in there that if there's um, economic shocks like, you know, COVID uh, or uh, downturn in the U.S. economy or other, other crises, uh, we can uh, draw uh, additional funds out of the trust fund to kind of stabilize our economy. As you know, uh, one of the biggest challenges that we had was, uh, uh, well, first, economic coercion by our, our neighbors by reducing the number of visitors coming to Palau and then later getting hit by COVID. So in the end, we really got 30% uh, of our economy was gone. We went into debt. Uh, and so the compact also addresses the huge debt burden that we have in helping us uh, pay that down. So. A combination of those really puts Palau on a, a path to uh, economic resilience. Uh, so in the end, the agreement really uh, puts the United States, it's a win for the United States and also a win for Palau. And I think that's the way agreement should be. They should be a win for both parties. Farrow also says the U.S.'s negotiating position changed when you personally insisted Washington negotiate with Palau equitably. So what were your demands? What did you get? Well, uh, I think that one of the important things is that uh, now when we look at this uh, compact, the, the financial assistance or the economic assistance doesn't end. It, it, it continues uh, because the relationship with the United States continues. Uh, you know, uh, that, that was the big uh, difference is, is the economic assistance was ending, but the relationship and, and the requirements of the United States for their defense purposes or defending uh, the U.S. homeland remain. And I think that's where we said, you know, uh, this is not, uh, the agreement is unbalanced and it, let's relook at it. And uh, the U.S. position really is uh, at the end of uh, the next term, which is we have, uh, it's coming up in 10 years. And then there's another 10 years after that, which would end the 50. Uh, there'll be reviews, uh, but there's guaranteed assistance that will continue uh, unless both parties decide to walk away. And, and that's, uh, you know, so both parties agree to move forward. Um, assistance continues. Uh, if we walk away, then, you know, of course, uh, it, it ends. But uh, that's, I think that's the equity that's in this uh, agreement versus the original agreement, which was uh, the, the demands in the United States continue, but the economic assistance stops. That was Palau President Sarangal Whips Jr. speaking there to the ABC's Patricia Cavellas. You're listening to Pacific Beat this Wednesday morning. A Canadian couple sailing in French Polynesia were forced to build their own makeshift rudder after it fell off their boat more than a thousand kilometers from shore. Reporter Jan Kahoot heard how their ingenuity of uh, Jeanne LeBanc Strife and Dan Strife brought their boat back, that, that was the book called The Lucky Dog, back to shore. And so it apparently just broke off and floated away. 
we didn't hit anything or anything like that. We um, heard our autopilot alarm go off and the boat rounded up. And then my husband went out and there was absolutely no steerage, as you would expect. And uh, that was about 4.30 in the morning. And so it, it was, at daylight is when we took a dive camera and all we could see is part of the rudder post sticking out under the boat about a foot of it. So what were you thinking in that moment when the rudder was not there? You know, it's funny. You think about a lot of different things. The first thing you think about is, you know, what can you build or fashion to serve as a temporary rudder? And then you immediately think, well, what are the sea conditions and how far are we from land? And what is our situation? And do you need to call for help? And we were in pretty strong swells, and the boat was, like, rocking back and forth uh, quite a bit. You know, we're trying to think while we're being slammed back and forth, and we figure, well, we better at least reach out and give a pan-pan to the Coast Guard. So that, that part of the story where you guys uh, headed back to land, and uh, you were trying to construct uh, your own rudder made out of resources that you found... How did you come about doing that? Uh, well, I uh, just uh, looked, looked around the boatyard with a, a friend was already here, and he kind of scattered out what some of the stuff the boatyard had, some possibilities, and then I arrived, and we really scraped together a lot of stuff based on, uh, I'm an engineer, so I know what what can be welded together and what can't be, and we got found bits and pieces of the right parts so we could, we could do, we had, there's a welder on the island and we got uh, about an hour of his time. So we picked the right parts and cut them up and drilled all the holes and did all the stuff, all the work. And then he could uh, just weld them together. I was wondering how you f- managed to find the skipper in the end and who was he? We, even though we don't typically join up with, you know, rallies and groups, we had signed up with the Pacific Puddle Jump coming over and they had different they had different individuals that they, you know, were in touch with across French Polynesia about our situation. And so I got a, I got a text saying, you know, from someone in Rangaroa that I got, I got a WhatsApp saying, I think we have a skipper for you, but he's at sea. And so you won't be able to talk to him for a few days. And so we waited. He, was, he just happened to be on his way to Hiva Oa. And um, a local uh, French fellow. And when he came in, we met with him and discussed terms and how we were going to do this. And he accepted the, the uh, uh, taking us out expedition. to the boat of this expedition. Yeah, expedition's a good exp- uh, descriptor of it. The Garmin that we left on board, we set it to transmit every 10 minutes. And it would it would transmit up to a satellite, which then would relay it down to a computer, um, and then we could look up the position. And so that's what our friends were looking up. But we had no way of of getting on a computer while we're at sea. So we could we could call back on the Iridia Go and send text messages and also voice message to our two separate friends that were would give us updates every six to twelve hours, and then later. You know, every hour until we found the boat. So the rudder was put back into place in high winds and swell using a dinghy. How was the journey back into Hivaoa? 
Yep. So then we, uh, then we rest for a little bit and we're like, well, I wonder how well this is going to work. We put a handle in and we rolled out the sail just a little bit and the boat took off. So the rudder was working fine. Uh, you sailed back to, uh, Hiva Oa. Yeah. Uh, the, the weather got bad. Well, yeah, the, the, the rudder was working fine, but when you turn and you have wind on your quarter and it's too much, there's a lot of pressure on the rudder and we would lose wildly lose control in, in anywhere from 25 to 30 knots of wind. They issued an advisory not to come into the harbor. They didn't want anybody in the harbor. Even the outside of the harbor was crazy because the swells were coming from the southwest, big swells, because of 30-knot winds. But we agreed with the skipper that we would sail through the pass and try to go around the next island. So eventually we did that. We, uh, we had to take a rest for an hour because it was, it was grueling. Three days were grueling, then ending up with this. Uh, we finally get into the anchorage. And uh, we, the wind switches directions five or six times. Our buddy boat captain sees this. He, so he comes out in his boat and throws us a line and tows us in the last couple hundred meters. Yeah. <laughs> his tow line then snaps. And then we drift in close enough in about 50 feet of water. And that was close enough. So we just threw out our anchor there. And we, were, we collapsed yeah, at that point. Uh, that was uh, the two couples there, uh, Jean LeBlanc Strife and Dan Strife, speaking there to Jan Kahoot. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat for your Wednesday morning. If you're just tuning in to recap today's show, we got some insight into the minds of voters in Timor-Leste. Uh, their vote brought the um, former independence leader, Guzmão, to head the election. The management of the COVID pandemic and the fact that the government um, had to close down, it was it was a big punishment vote on this election for that. We also heard from Fiji, where the Great Council of Chiefs will reconvene for the first time in 16 years and heard what it means for the country. Each of the provinces will send three chiefs from their provinces to meet with all the others from around the country to basically advise government on Indigenous affairs. You can hear those stories and anything else by heading to our website, ABC Pacific is where you can find us. Just type that into your search bar and you should head to us. Uh, you can uh, hear longer versions of the stories that you have, the grabs that you just heard, and you can also catch up on previous episodes of all Pacific Beat and all our other Radio Australia stories, uh, content as well. We've got uh, plenty of shows to keep you happy, from sports to music. Do head on to ABC Pacific to find all of that. That's it for me for today. Tune into uh, the, the station still because news is next. I'll be back same time, same place tomorrow morning. Till then, have a lovely day.